0: We are very pleased tonight to have Dr. Steiner from Cambridge talk on Tolstoy and the human person. Many of you will know his book tolstoy Dostoevsky and his death of tragedy, both of which of course have achieved fame on both sides of the Atlantic and have been translated into French, German and Italian. And there is a recent proposal by a prominent Soviet scholar that Tolstoy or Dostoevsky should be translated into Russian. I perhaps ought to mention that Dr. Steiner was perhaps one of the very first people ever to mention Zhivago in the Soviet Union to Soviet students. When he was in Kiev, shortly after the publication of Zhivago, he, in fact, discussed Zhivago with uh, students at Kiev. Uh, He is, therefore, as it were, a pioneer in bringing culture to the Soviet Union. Um, And uh, I think we will all be extremely interested in his talk on Tolstoy and the human person (laughs) Dr. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I am
1: extremely privileged to be here, very grateful that you should have thought of me at the occasion of this 10th anniversary. I am, however, genuinely and very, very deeply embarrassed. I am, in a sense, as yet a stranger in this house Because I do not speak Russian. And knowing Dr. Freeborn's views, though he's much too kind to refer to them, on those who intrude upon Russian literary studies without even the minimum qualification, I came here rather uneasy. But I've decided take the option of regarding him tonight, not as the Hume lecturer in Russian, but as a novelist, as a practicing novelist, whose most recent novel will, I believe, have a very direct bearing on some of the points I hope to raise. All of you are familiar with the scene of the duel in book four chapter five of war and peace of course a duel of this kind was insane affair in russian literature of the 19th century one needs think only of pushkin yamontov Turgenev; a dozen others come to mind whom we can compare there are in this scene however a number of traits which are uniquely Tolstoy, traits not easy to interpret and which at first seem to mar the mood of the occasion. Even in midst of the duel, as you recall, Pierre's disordered humanity breaks through in a nearly comic, grotesque way. He loses sight of the murderous purpose of the moment. He loses sight of the minimal protection he must accord to himself, and such is the rush of love he feels for his opponent in the very instant of firing that he moves toward him, and we have the extraordinary touch of Denisov II shouting to Pierre, to the adversary, God's sake, cover yourself. Don't offer this kind of target. And at the end of this short scene, there are two other traits. Pierre rushes off into the deep snow and into the silence of the surrounding forest, alerting us, as always in Tolstoy, to the central governing balance between the mundane, urban, murderous conventions of society and the larger silence and validity of the forest and of the snow and as dolokhov comes to in the carriage and is carried back gravely wounded tolstoy ends the chapter with this curious touch rostov went on ahead to do what was asked and to his great surprise learned that Dolokhov, the bully, the brawler, lived in Moscow with an old mother and a hunchback sister, and was the most affectionate of sons and daughters. The mother and the hunchback sister is really my starting point tonight. The question of why they are introduced at this point, and the way in which they work in this scene. On one level, there is that Dickensian side of Tolstoy, the touch of sentiment, of sentimentality, which critics at times approach, but far more deeply, there is the complication of any human personage for Tolstoy. The enormous respect in front of the contradictory values of the characters he himself had created And imagined. We have seen the bully, the brawler, the drunk, the seducer, the profligate, in a series of very brutal scenes, such as at the dinner where he provoked the duel. We have seen him now, you remember, biting the snow, trying to steady his aim for a shot. And suddenly we see an entirely different human being, in a moment, human being rather sentimental, as I say rather Dickensian, a loving son, a loving brother. And if that little sentence were not at the end of the chapter, it would be very different from Tolstoy. It would be a very different kind of work, and a different view of the relationship between the author and his characters. It is on that relationship that I want to focus tonight. How does the novelist regard the independence and complication of the people he has created, who are, after all, his creatures? Tolstoy is never afraid of the totally contradictory touch. He's never afraid of breaking a powerful unity of mood, of impression, by adding something which may seem irrelevant. And then suddenly becomes very important. For we ourselves are no longer able to think of the duel in a simple way. We ourselves, like Pierre, feel an impulse of bewildered humanity. And the whole scene shifts out of focus in a characteristic Tolstoyan way, to show a much larger piece of life behind it. There is a whole life of Dolohov which we haven't known about either and which is very important. And now perhaps we begin understanding, and this I think is the magic of Tolstoy in which no other novelist has ever equaled him. He makes us work for him. He makes us pursue the hint. We begin understanding the compulsive, superficial Don Juanism. We begin understanding why he's known as a great pursuer of elegant women, the old mother and the hunchback sister, at the core of his life, off the scene. And all the scenes that have come before shift into a new light, a light both ironic and very deeply compassionate. I want to look in the same book. Still in Book Four, at one other touch, again one sentence, very often the core of a Tolstoyan moment is in the tiniest detail. Remember the deaths of the little princess, again a scene curiously Dickensian in the way it is built up, and in the way Tolstoy uses visual detail, nearly as if There was a quote from dickens the doctor with his shirt sleeves tucked up with a coat pale with a trembling jaw came out of the room he doesn't say anything prince andrew realizes that the little princess has died a woman rushed out without seeing prince andrew stopped hesitated on the threshold went back into his wife's room andrew went in she was lying dead in the same position as he had seen her five minutes before, and despite the fixed eyes and the pallor of her cheeks, the same expression was on her charming childlike face with the upper lip covered with small black hairs. It is that last sentence I want to look at for a moment. In this instant of deliberate, strong pesos, it is an agonizing moment. The prince just back, the princess dead in childbirth, the storm raging, the old father angry, bewildered, this profoundly Tolstoyan, the lip covered with small black hair. By no means an attractive detail, by no means a touch makes it easier for us to feel sentimental, nearly a brutal touch and one wonders why and you take away that sentence of the little black hairs on her lip the whole thing loses much of its power of conviction i believe that tolstoy put that sentence there put it quite naively because he saw those hairs He saw them in such an undeniably concrete way that it would have seemed to him falsehood not to mention them, to leave them out for some reason of sentiment or beauty. There is in Tolstoy a unique completeness and authority of exact detail a unique authority which allows, in fact invites, the blemish, the mark, the contradictory point or impulse. Because he sees all, we believe. Because nothing is slighted in the interest of formal grace or easy sentiment, we are left many and contradictory impressions, and it is in the contradiction that seems to lie the convincing power. The sharpness of detail in Tolstoy is, I believe, itself a morality, a system of ethics. The decision not to omit the disagreeable, the ridiculous, the slightly grotesque, stands for a central respect of the human person and of the literary character as a human person. We enter here upon a paradox with which criticism often quarrels. You will recall that in his book, Qu'est-ce que c'est que la littérature? Sartre mocks those who would believe that a character has independent life. He says there is no such thing, this is naive epistemology. A character is merely the will of the author, he exists only in that will. And on the basis of logic, this is an irrefutable position, and yet how utterly unsatisfactory it is when we try to understand the peculiar power of a Tolstoyan person the way in which that personage seems to impose on the author, and on us, the concreteness of their presence, the total detail of their appearance and feeling. In part, this is a triumph of length. The Tolstoyan novel, quite obviously, builds up with such spaciousness and leisure, compass, detail by detail, that it is able to take risks of contradiction, which a shorter form cannot allow itself. By the time we reach the little black hairs on the lip of the little princess, her personage has been so carefully established for us, visually, emotionally that the detail cannot repel, it can only move. It adds to our sense, of the helplessness, and to our conviction that this is really what she looked like in that moment of death. Tolstoy's humanism is not, in the 19th century sense, a humaneness or in the West European 19th-century liberal sense, a humanistic position. There is, in Tolstoy's vision, as we well know, frequent occasion of cruelty, of ruthlessness. His humanism is something, I think, rather special. It is an enormous respect for the liberty For the privacies of the characters in his own work. It were as if, having conceived them, they came to be for him human beings with an authority at times rivaling his own, and with rights, rights of privacy, rights of growth, of development, of change. I know of no other novelist who treats his personages with as much reverence. And the paradox is that this mastering man, remember Gorky's many observations on him as a kingly person, as a tyrannical person, that this mastering man, at the time when he's writing his greatest fiction, behaves towards his own creation with a scrupulous, watchful humility. Let me illustrate this by considering two examples of Tolstoy's treatment of the most vulnerable and intense of all human situations, the situations of sexual life, a treatment the more remarkable because, as we shall see, some of his own areas of uncertitude or dogma were involved. In Anna Karenina, there are two passages, one very early in the book, one very late, which seem to balance each other. And I think they're intended to. The first is That extraordinary moment in Chapter 34 of Part 1, when Anna is back from her trip, is at home again, and is momentarily at peace, and astonished about the curious, nearly frivolous whirl of feeling in which she found herself involved only a few hours before. All is calm in the house, and Tolstoy establishes a silence. The completeness of the silence in the Karenin house. And she thinks he's a good man, truthful, kind, remarkable in his own sphere, all of which of course is true, and Tolstoy wants us to realize its truth. She said this to herself, returned to a room as if defending him from someone who accused him. Nobody, of course, has accused him yet exactly at midnight when anna was still sitting at her writing table finishing a letter to dolly she heard the measured tread of slippered feet the measured tread of slippered feet and karenin entered freshly washed his hair brushed and a book under his arm and it is part of the extreme subtlety of tolstoy's art that these touches in themselves admirable should already make us uneasy The man is, as it were, too washed, the hair too brushed for midnight. It's time, it's time, said he, with a significant smile, going into their bedroom. Then what right has he to look at him as he did, thought Anna, remembering how Vronsky had looked at Karenin. When she was undressed, she went into the bedroom. But on her face, not only was there not a trace of that animation, which during her stay in Moscow had sparkled in her eyes and smile, but on the contrary, the fire in her now seemed quenched or hidden somewhere very far away. The power of this scene, the sexual power, is immense. The fire is quenched or hidden far away. Tolstoy so communicates to us the full catastrophe of the failure of relation. In every small touch, the measured tread of the slippered feet, the hair well brushed, the man's significant smile. Significant here, we begin to feel of a certain abstract, fatuous self-assurance about their relationship. And as she goes in, apparently happy, outwardly calm, that very calm turns into failure. The fire is out. That scene is nearly exactly counterpoised in part six, near the end of the novel, in chapter 34. You will recall that what just comes before involves Tolstoy's deepest, most complicated emotions. Dolly and Anna have been talking, and the theme of birth control has come up. theme which, as we know at this stage in the book, Tolstoy is beginning to be involved with as a theoretical writer, as a teacher, as an educator, is extremely uneasy about, is beginning to have doctrinaire convictions about, which will come out later in his life and in other works. And Anna now returns to her boudoir. She returned to her boudoir, took a wine glass, and put into it some drops of medicine, the chief ingredient of which was morphia. Having drunk it, she was still for a few moments. Then she entered her bedroom, cheerfully and gaily, not as in the previous scene, quietly but fire out. When she came in, Vronsky regarded her attentively. He tried to find some trace of the conversation, which he knew that she had just had. But in her expression of restrained excitement, you remember the earlier passage, there was no excitement in her expression, which concealed something, he detected nothing, except that beauty which still captivated him. He did not wish to ask her what they had been talking about, but hoped that she would tell him of her own accord. However, she only said, I'm glad you like Dolly, you do. But I've known her a long time, I think she's very kind, She's is excessivement terre à terre. But all the same, I'm glad she came. He took Anna's hand and looked inquiringly into her eyes. She, misunderstanding that look, smiled at him. The wheel has come full circle. The smile before was Kareli's, asking her into the bedroom. And now, in an apparent moment of happiness, we already see made marvelously clear the new catastrophe, the intimate failure between Anna and Vronsky, the beginning of the gnawing untruth which will mar that relationship too. Two instances of a very complex erotic situation in which the sexual problem implicates the total humanity of the characters. In both instances, Tolstoy makes a major statement about human relationships, where those relationships are most private, most difficult to describe, and makes it completely in a very complex statement. And yet, there is no single obvious erotic detail. And there is no single obvious erotic detail, not as a matter, I think, of literary prudence, of moralistic tactic, but for, of course, a much deeper reason. Because Tolstoy had at his disposal so complete a view of the human person that the sexuality of the human person did not need to be separately stated or outwardly described. And this triumph of sexual insight, and it is crucial in the novel, was achieved by means of most utmost reticence. It is that reticence which again, I believe, illustrates his respect in front of the privacy of his characters, a reticence so deep that we, too, feel saddened, embarrassed, afraid, when we are brought so near to their night hours and to their moments of intimacy. The respect he has in front of the right of the character not to be naked even to him. And from that respect comes the extraordinary force and persuasion in those incidents. But even as Tolstoy was writing, his art was beginning to appear archaic and naive. I need not remind you of some more famous arguments against Henry James, though admiring, spoke and developed the image of the loose, baggy monsters of Tolstoy's novels, and by his own instance went on to develop a very different possession of character, a very different quality of minute analysis. And with James, and flaubert and their heritage they began the pointeism the analytic dissolution of consciousness which is so characteristic of the end of the period of the classic 19th century novel and of the major triumphs of the western novel in the early 20th century a prise de possession as Maupassant said of Flaubert's novels, a taking completely by the novelist of the character as his right, as his due, as his creature, and hence empowered to analyze the character for us to the minutest detail, to strip him naked if need be, to invade his privacy and his autonomy in order to show us every moment of psychic impulse, every detail of consciousness. The change in technique brought obvious trials. There is an inward possession of character, of mental motive, of sensibility in James, in Richardson, in Virginia Woolf, in Proust, supremely enjoys of course which one would not wish ever to do without there is a science of human motive which distinguishes the fiction of that period and which gives it much of its lasting fascination and power no secrets are kept from us we descend more and more into the interior of the character we live his very dreams, we live his very unconscious. Tolstoy seemed to many of these writers to have missed the opportunity of complete insight. That opportunity which they themselves not only avail themselves of, but constituted, but believed to constitute, the supreme achievement of the prose novel, that achievement by virtue of which it was a major literary form and could challenge the earlier dominion of poetry and of drama. This analytic power, which leads finally to Joyce and his imitators, is profoundly different from the technique of deliberate restraint we have seen in Tolstoy. Moreover, there came to pass a considerable change in reading habits, in habits of imagination, competing as Tolstoy said they would in his book What is Art? competing against the intense plurality of rapid stimulants and nervous excitement the novelists of the 20th century captured for their own the freedom of sexual language, of sexual experience and description. It is there, I believe, that Lawrence is so profoundly un-Tolstoy and that the comparisons so often made between Lawrence and Tolstoy break down. Today, we are seeing the crisis of this kind of freedom. A crisis of artistic means, if not of moral meaning. For where everything can be shown, and everything can be said, the character in the novel becomes curiously and deeply unliving. Precisely because there is no more door ever closed, no nakedness left unexplored, we cease to believe in the autonomous vitality of the literary personage. But above all, and this I think is the most important point, the inhumanization of the human persons through war and political barbarism can be related to this splintering of the human character in the novel. Though we are still too close to the events fully to understand them or to apprehend the relationships between them, there is surely a possibility that one day historians of literature and of art and of politics will relate the fragmentation of the human face in Cubism, for example the deliberate fragmentation of the human body in so much of twentieth-century painting. They will relate it to Schoenberg's genial decision to move away from the natural key relations of the human ear. They will relate it to the abandonment of the human scale in the way we build, in the speeds of our travel and motion in our urban labor, and in the increasing haste of our leisures, This breakup of the dignity, of the privacy of human face and figure, dehumanization in art, in politics, in the treatment of human beings, led to the situation illustrated tragically powerfully by Jean Val, a French philosopher, when he observed that in the concentration camps, and he was in one, the memory of Tolstoy was an affront. Only Dostoevsky seemed to help, him, and seemed to help men to endure. The affront being that Tolstoy's vision of man had in it such an essential nobility privacy, dignity, that in conditions when man no longer could aspire to any of these qualities, his witness seemed to have been somehow false, false to the truth. And there is no doubt that part of the sense of the old-fashioned in the reading of Tolstoy, particularly in the 1940s and 50s, part of the sense of a world of escape of a world very remote on a grander scale, of course, than Prolop or Balzac, but not inherently more relevant. Part of that sense came from the fact that the kind of human experience then taking place seemed to contradict the essential classicism, the essential respect in Torstoy's treatment of body and mind, of privacy and feeling. But I wonder tonight whether we are not beginning to see a return to a more and reading of man's integrity and of the right of the literary character, paradoxical as it may be, of the right of the character to that central privacy which gives him vital truth. For literary characters, if they are to live and assume this strange miracle of independent existence, independent from those that created them, independent indeed from the books in which they first appear, if they are to assume this existence, perhaps they also, in some sense, have rights that guard them from the reader and that guard them from the total dominion Of the author himself. There are a number of novelists who are beginning, who have, in fact, moved in a direction that seems characteristically Tolstoy. I can tonight mention only a few obvious examples. We know that John Cooper I, deeply influenced by Tolstoy, and in a novel such as Wolf Soland and Wolf himself, as a character with deep kinship to live in, we see an attempt made again to restore to the actions in the novel the rights of reticence, which are so very much unlike Lawrence, and so much like Tolstoy and Hardy. In Patrick White, and I'm thinking particularly of a novel called Voss, the relationship between Laura Trevelyan and the hero of the novel, a nearly mystical intensity of communion, a total erotic absorption of two characters who are never together, and who are two intensely private and guarded beings. I'm thinking, of course, of the novel that seems to so many deliberately to take up from Tolstoy and from Resurrection, Shivada, with its immense inner doctrine of liberty, liberty of the persons depicted, liberty of their mystery, refusal to master them to tyrannize them. And in each of these instances, very characteristically, that exploring of sexual life, which is, I believe, central to 20th century fiction, which is its main domain and achievement, that exploring is marvelously unattended by physical detail is marvellously uncharacterized by technical language or the insistence upon the concrete visual experience. In each case, the experience of love in the novel is left private in the way in which Tolstoy left it private in his own work, not in all of his own work. I think one of the things I would want to say is that part of the mark of the torment of the later Tolstoy, of the peculiar strain upon his genius, is his abandonment of this principle in certain later works, such as the Kreutzer Sonata, with its profoundly uncharacteristic technical touches in this very question. It seems to me, and I think we should not be afraid of saying so. We should not be afraid of embarrassment in saying that the role of the novelist at present is one of very special urgency and risk. His treatment of characters may serve as a moral paradigm of a renewed respect for the human person. The sense of that respect is grimly absent from most of the political practices of our lives. Never before have we needed as much the lesson of the artist in his treatment of his own creations to help us reformulate the sense of the privacy, of the integrity of the human person, even in the most extreme social, economic, political situation. The novelist may, in this sense, be the one, uh, one of the few, who can consciously and deliberately guard against the animalism, the bestialization of the human person, which after destroying the image of man in cubist painting, after emptying painting of man in abstract expressionism, has now in pop art arrived at a degradation of the human figure into complete tawdry virtuosity. The novelist is uniquely placed, and this surely is what is involved in Pasternak's genius and courage, to teach again very essential lessons of that liberalism which is not political, but which is finally, in the words of Thomas of Aquinas, the gift of regarding another human spirit as living flame, that gift of not touching it too nearly, of letting it be living flame. If the novelist can do this, If he can, again, help us to accept certain areas of silence between human beings, certain completions whereby we always see the little black hairs on the lip, but they do not jar us, they do not repel us, they do not seem to us cause either for flinching or for mockery, if the novelist can again help us realize that in the drunken brawler, in the duelist, in the Don Juan, there is strangely enough also a man we never knew, the other man with a hunchback sister, if he can help us again become provisional in our judgments of relations, if he can teach us to accept doors that close. He will, I think, be performing a function which might, for Tolstoy himself, have signified some reconciliation between the two visions that nearly tore him apart, and indeed did tear apart the end of his life. The vision of the artist in the joy of his creation, and the vision of the moralist and teacher of society because no novelist more than Tolstoy exemplifies for us the meaning of that phrase of Arnold, the great poet, as a critic of life, but a criticism which, even at its sharpest, is also a celebration. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast, brought to you by the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. This episode was recorded live at the Pushkin Club on the 24th of January 1964. The reel-to-reel recording was catalogued by Anastasia Karo and digitised in Oxford by Andrei Levitsky. This episode was edited and produced at Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. For more archive recordings, please subscribe to our podcast or check out our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening.